What's up, Ninja Nerds? I hope you liked that little intro there. I feel like a, a DJ right now. We're loving it. We're having some fun today. We're here for episode four. We're talking about respiratory acidosis. This is part two of five on our acid-based disorder uh, podcast. So, Zach, we're going to be talking about respiratory acidosis. What do the viewers need to do, though? What are the, what's the first thing they got to do? Well, before we even get started on this, you guys have to go to our website, ninjanerd.org. You guys got to get on to there. You guys got to become a member. And I think on there, what you're going to find extremely helpful to go along with these podcasts is you want to download those notes, download those illustrations, and we'll have all the YouTube videos that if you guys want to watch those as well. But I think getting those notes and illustrations and following along with me and Rob during this podcast, I really think it's going to enhance your learning process. And I think you guys will remember a lot of stuff from this podcast. So definitely go check that out. Couldn't agree more. All right, Zach, let's get started, man. Respiratory acidosis. Define it. What do we have to know about it? Yeah, so when we basically discuss the definition of respiratory acidosis, there is something that's causing an increase in the CO2 within the bloodstream. And we define this like increase in CO2 whenever, because you know, CO2 level is usually 35 to 45 millimeters of mercury within the blood. So whenever it's like greater than 45 millimeters of mercury, there's an elevation in the CO2. And we call that hypercapnia. Whenever you have high CO2, what happens is it complexes with the water, um, gets converted into carbonic acid, and then breaks down into protons. And that drops your pH. The question is, is what's causing this increase in the CO2? And I think you can like break it down into like four categories. I think that really helps me to remember it. I hope it helps you guys, but there's something going on with the central nervous system. So like the brain and the brainstem just aren't working. And so if they aren't working, you can't stimulate the nerves, the muscles, and then the chest wall to be able to trigger the breathing process. So you just won't breathe. And because of that, you aren't able to exhale and clear the CO2. So it builds up. And so the things that could cause this significant CNS depression, I would say would be benzodiazepines, uh, opioids, any kind of barbiturate like pentobarbital or phenobarbital. Those can actually suppress the respiratory drive. And again, that would be one particular reason. The other one is there's some type of like damage to the brainstem. So maybe there was some like traumatic brain injury. There's encephalitis. There's an infarct of the brainstem. That'd be something to think about. And the last one is there's actually something that's causing a significant depression and a lot of the like neural activity within the brain. And this would be something like hypothyroidism, like when patients have like significant hypothyroidism, like on the verge of myxedema coma. So again, to recap that, I would say that there's something that's causing the significant depression or just decreased activity of the central nervous system, like the brain and the brainstem. The second component here is that maybe the brain and the brainstem are intact, but like the spinal cord, the nerves that are coming from the spinal cord that are supposed to stimulate your muscles, your diaphragm, your intercostals, maybe those are damaged. And so things that would damage the spinal cord, any kind of spinal cord injury or trauma, something that's actually demyelinating the neurons of those actual intercostal and phrenic nerves. So like Guillain-Barre syndrome would be a big one or motor neuron diseases like ALS. Then you have to think about the next thing. What if the spinal cord and the nerves are intact, but like that neuromuscular junction is all jacked up? So someone has like myasthenia gravis where they have those antibodies that are affecting those acetylcholine receptors. So that's kind of another thing that there's something going on there at that neuromuscular junction. The next thing to think about is, is the muscles just like weak? So is there a like underlying myopathy, like the super rare, like, you know, dermatomyositis and polymyositis kind of things? Or is the, the muscles just like truly exhausted because you've been working them to death? 
And so the things I would think about for this is like anything that can cause muscular exhaustion. And this may seem paradoxical, but when patients are working really hard to breathe for a long period of time. So for example, someone has a respiratory rate that they've been breathing at 30 breaths per minute for the past 24 hours, eventually they're going to tucker out. Those muscles are going to get weak. They're not going to be able to maintain that rate. And then your respiratory rate slows down and then you're not able to clear that CO2 as well. And so CO2 builds up in the blood. So things to think about for that is anything that would cause you to breathe really, really fast for a long period of time. And so usually the highest trigger for like tachypnea, breathing fast to the point where you tucker out and get exhausted would be things like pulmonary edema, having a big fat pulmonary embolism, pneumonia, ARDS. Those would be things that would trigger hypoxemia, trigger you to breathe fast. But again, if you breathe so fast for a long period of time, eventually the muscles will get exhausted and they can't maintain that rate. So they slow down and you start accumulating that CO2 within the blood. The next thing I would think about is, is there something going on with like the chest wall? Is the chest wall not doing very good at being able to increase and allow air to come in? So expanding the chest wall because you have a big fat layer of tissue hanging on it like obesity. So patients who have obesity hypoventilation syndrome, it's harder to expand that chest wall, bring air in and subsequently get air out. The last thing I would say here would be, is there normal central nervous system drive? Is the nerves and the muscles intact? Is the chest wall okay, but there's something obstructing the airway? I'm having a problem getting CO2 out. So I'm breathing efficiently in a, in a sense, but I can't get the CO2 out of my lungs. And so that would be if there's an obstruction in the airway, particularly like upper airway obstruction, like you have a big fat form body, like a golf ball in the airway, or there is some type of like lower airway obstruction. So maybe there's like significant COPD or asthma. That's there's a lot of bronchospasm or bronchoconstriction that it's hard to get just to get that CO2 out. Does that make sense, Rob? Yeah, Zach, that makes perfect sense. And I'm going to try and go ahead and recap everything you just said, because that's a lot of information to try and digest there. So respiratory acidosis, this is where your CO2 increases in the blood and it's called hypercapnia, which causes the acidosis. A couple of causes here that you have to remember, four of them really uh, big ones here. Uh, Brain or brainstem won't trigger the breathing, so CO2 isn't exhaled. A lot of causes that Zach mentioned earlier. Um, Or the next one, nerves, muscles, chest wall can't fire, contract, or move to efficiently breathe. So the CO2 isn't exhaled and it builds up. Airway obstruction, whether it's an upper or lower, uh, CO2 can't be exhaled in this situation. And then finally, the, the patient can breathe, but the air being inhaled and exhaled aren't mobilized, so CO2 isn't exhaled. All right, Zach, so what will these patients look like with respiratory acidosis? What are the things I should be looking for on my bedside exam? Yeah, and sometimes this can actually be relatively insidious where it's not super obvious their exam findings for uh, respiratory acidosis. So when you're looking at the patient, especially think about this in a patient who's like delirious, they have new onset delirium or agitation, or they're just really sleepy and lethargic and sedated appearing. Uh, sometimes what can happen is the CO2 builds up enough in the bloodstream that can actually, uh, you know, cause significant like encephalopathy. We call this like CO2 narcosis. And so sometimes that's something I would definitely look at at the bedside. If you're worried about respiratory acidosis and this patient has new onset delirium agitation or significant somnolence or lethargy, think about that. The other thing to think about here is that usually this is more chronic. Um, so I would definitely think about this in the chronic patients who have this high CO2 levels is in COPD patients or asthma patients or some type of pulmonary hypertension issue. There is a increase in the CO2 within the bloodstream that it causes pulmonary vasoconstriction. And that can cause pulmonary hypertension and then put a lot of stress on that side, right side of the heart. And that can lead to right side heart 
heart failure. So sometimes you may see that. The other thing I would definitely be on high alert for, especially in your neurologically ill patients, especially for me, is sometimes with that super high CO2, it can actually cause vasodilation of the blood vessels in the brain, and that can increase the intracranial pressure. And so this can actually worsen headaches. It can cause uh, papilla edema, maybe worsening neurodeficits. And sometimes the other thing is that it can actually cause uh, tremors, like very coarse tremors or asterixis as well. So those are things I would be looking at for just the basic symptoms signs or like physical exam findings, I would be at the bedside and just take a look at their respiratory rate. If they're breathing slow, that's one of the ways that we're going to accumulate CO2 because we're not clearing that CO2 with a good respiratory rate. So if they're breathing at like four breaths per minute, that's definitely something to think about. Look at those pupils, especially with the opioids or benzos. Look for any kind of pinpoint pupils. That's a big thing. The other thing is look for any kind of obvious brain or brainstem injury. So look for any neurological weakness, any decreased deep tendon reflexes, any sensory losses. Look for any types of pupillary changes or uh, any cranial nerve palsies of any kind. The other thing is definitely take a look and listen with that stethoscope. Use that thing that you paid for and listen for any wheezing, listening for any ronchi, listening for any strider to help me to see if there is any uh, obvious obstruction. Look to see if they're actually moving air efficiently in and out of their chest. And then the other thing is sometimes if these patients are intubated, you can actually go to the ventilator and check something called peak pressures. And peak pressures just tell you about the degree of resistance within the airway. And if those are high, that also is a bedside finding that I can look at and say, oh, there might be high resistance, maybe some type of like bronchospasm or again, resistance to actual airflow. Those are the big things I'd be looking for at the bedside, Rob. Awesome. So here's what we really want to get into. This is the most important thing, and it's really just trying to problem solve and taking some real case examples and trying to figure it out. So we're going to take two patients here, guys, and we're going to look at the ABG for each of them. So let's say I'm in the ED. Um, I'm, I'm working in the ED. I have a patient come in, 52-year-old male uh, with recent undisclosed drug use, pinpoint pupils, a respiratory rate of four. However, Narcan reversed these findings. You get their ABG back. They have a pH of 7.2. Uh, PCO2 of 94, a PO2 of 75, and their bicarb is 24. Zach and, and everyone else listening, try and solve this and, and work through it. What do you think is going on here? Um, and what do, what do these numbers mean? Yeah, and I think this is one of the, the really, really good examples that you may see in your clinical vignettes is, again, taking into consideration the history and physical exam. Oftentimes, that's going to be the big things to diagnose these acidoses. Um, and so what I look at is I have a patient here with a pH. So we interpret the ABG first, and then we'll utilize their history and physical exam to kind of get me to where I need. So I look at their pH first, and I want to know, okay, is it low, is it high, or is it normal? In this case, it's low. So I have a low pH. There's some type of acidemia. So there's probably an acidotic process that's triggering this. Next thing I do is I check the PCO2. Remember, if you guys remember from ABG interpretation podcast, is that these should go in the opposite direction. So whenever the pH is low, the PCO2 should go high if it's a respiratory problem. In this case, it's banging up there, right? 90s. Holy crap. That's a really high PCO2. So I definitely can have a opposite movement of those arrows, definitely making me think that the primary issue is a respiratory acidosis. Don't stop though. Go to the bicarb. Check that out. Is it normal? Is it high? Is it low? It's actually within the normal range. So that doesn't tell me if there's any particular kind of like compensation or associated metabolic disorder here because again normal bicarb is like 22 to 26. The other thing I can do is I can check that O2 just to help me in my kind of a, a assumption here. Because remember, I told you that patients are super hypoxemic. It can trigger tachypnea, have them work really hard, breathe really hard, and eventually they just can't keep and sustain that rate. That's another thing to think about. This patient's a little bit hypoxemic, but it also could be because their respiratory rate's like, what was it, Rob? Like four or five? So, yeah, four or five. <laughs> so they're not taking much air in and not getting much air out. 
So right away, I can definitely say this is a primary respiratory acidosis based upon the low pH and the high CO2 with no other kind of confounding like things that I see on their uh, ABG. And then again, their history and physical exam finding is like classic. So they have definitely probably taken some type of opioid. I'm sorry, in this case, definitely an opioid because they got Narcan and Narcan or Naloxone reversed that opioid. So definitely coming in with some type of decreased like somnolent or uh, really, really depressed type of activity and then having these pinpoint pupils from opioids um, and then getting the Narcan and reversing it. And then again, then breathing at a respiratory rate of like four, there was CNS depression. So that was their likely cause. CNS depression wasn't causing those the brain and the brain stem to fire, respiratory center isn't firing, isn't stimulating the nerves and the muscles, and the chest wall isn't moving or inflating and exhaling as well. You aren't clearing the CO2, CO2 builds up in the blood and that causes the acidosis. So with this patient, I think their primary respiratory acidosis is due to CNS depression secondary to opioids. And again, we already reversed them with the naloxone. So I think that answers that one, Rob. And Zach, this is, there's no compensation present, right? No, definitely no compensation present. So when you look there, you'd wanna see that bicarb. And so in this situation, their pH is low. We would want their pH to increase in this case if we had compensation. So we'd want their bicarb to go up. And that's gonna take a little bit of time. This patient just like rocked into the ED right now. It's gonna take about a day or two before that bicarb actually bumps up and their kidneys resorb some bicarb and excrete some protons to actually compensate for this. So that might take about a day before you actually see that change. That makes sense because more, more so respiratory problems are gonna be like very acute, whereas metabolic might be a little delayed, correct? Yeah, so that, that metabolic compensation is gonna take a little bit of time to be able to uh, allow for that pH to change and improve and potentially partially or fully compensate. Okay, moving on to patient two. Again, you're in the ED. You have a 34-year-old female with pneumonia and she's on high flow nasal cannula, 50 liters at 50% FiO2, and she has been giving antibiotics. The patient is tachypnic at a respiratory rate of 28 over the past 24 hours. Today, she is really starting to tucker out and her respiratory rate is now down to 10. Some findings here, you get that ABG back. pH, 7.25, PCO2, 58, the O2, 64, and then her bicarb is at 26. Zach, everyone listening, try and figure this out. What do you what do you make of these numbers here and these findings? Yeah, so when I look at the pH again, I see it's low. So I have an acidosis. The next thing I look at is the PCO2. So I want to know is the PCO2 going in the opposite direction, which it is. So there's likely a respiratory acidosis that's the primary issue for this. But don't stop. Go to the bicarb. Bicarb, I want to know is it low, is it high, or is it normal? In this case, it's still within that normal range. 22 to 26 is the normal range. It's at 26. What I would expect, though, to go back what we talked about before in the patient number one is if the patient was compensating, let's say over the next 24 to 48 hours at this initial issue started, I would want that bicarb to start going up so that we could drop the, so we could actually increase the pH because right now the pH is really low, but it hasn't happened effectively yet. Maybe we're starting that process, but we just haven't gotten to that point where we compensated appropriately yet. So the next thing I look at here is the O2 just to help me with my diagnosis. Okay. So again, O2 is low. And the reason why I know it's low is we're in the sixties and this patient is on 50% FiO2. Their PF ratio is definitely getting on the lower end where I'm a little bit concerned. So right now, if I look at this, I have a patient with a low pH, high CO2, so it's definitely a primary respiratory acidosis. Their bicarb hasn't increased enough to where I'm cons actually considering there to be metabolic compensation yet. And then the next thing I know is that this person is hypoxemic with a very low PF ratio. So when I look at their history and physical exam, I go into the room and I saw this patient the other day and they were huffing and puffing and breathing at a rate of 28 to 30 breaths per minute. And now they're down to 10 breaths per minute. They look exhausted 
and they have pneumonia and they're on high flow nasal cannula, I would say at this point, Rob, I've optimized the best I can with the non-invasive measures. And I think at this point, this patient needs to be intubated. Um, and, and I think that that is going to be the best situation for them. We have them on the IV antibiotics, but I don't think we're optimizing the respiratory status right now. So I think they definitely need to be intubated um, and protect their airway and give them some rest to that muscles, that diaphragm, those intercostals. Okay. Yeah. So Zach, you got this ABG, it showed respiratory acidosis. Sometimes I see you can use your history to make a presumptive diagnosis, but what about if the history isn't very helpful, the exam's not very helpful, what other labs imaging would you order in this uh, in this scenario? Yeah, and that's a great thing because like I said, sometimes the signs and the symptoms of like have of a patient with respiratory acidosis isn't super obvious. Sometimes it can be helpful, especially if you have those classic cases of patients who have taken some type of opioid or benzo and now they have pinpoint pupils, they're super somnolent, they have a depressed central nervous system activity. Those are definitely relatively obvious. Or a patient who's been working really hard and tuckered out and they're, you know, now after breathing at a respiratory rate of 30 breaths per minute, now they've slowed down a little bit. Or if you have those patients with an obvious obstruction to their airway and you hear strider, you see bronchospasm, things like that, I think are relatively obvious, but sometimes it's relatively difficult to discern um, what's actually going on with the respiratory acidosis. What's the trigger? What's the cause? And so I think some of the things to start off with on these patients, besides an ABG or a VBG, is get a chest x-ray. Take a look at those lungs. You want to make sure that the lung isn't the problem. Make sure that there isn't a big whopping pneumonia. Make sure there isn't a big fat, fat pleural effusion or a pneumothorax that's affecting the ability to take air in and exhale air out. Um, the other thing is to make sure that there is actually no pulmonary embolism. So maybe you need to get a CTPA to make sure that there isn't a big whopping fat clot within one of the pulmonary arteries. The other thing that you can consider in these patients is sometimes, especially if they're participating well within these, you can do bedside pulmonary function tests, but these aren't like the classic ones that you think about for your obstructive lung disease or restrictive lung disease. You can check these things called NIF, negative inspiratory force, and their force vital capacity. And so when you look at these, they may help you. So NIF's negative inspiratory force is kind of telling you about their ability to suck air in. And so if that's really low, I would be concerned about them having some type of like neuromuscular weakness, maybe exhaustion, maybe Guillain-Barre, maybe myasthenia gravis of some kind. But if their FVC is really low, that's another thing I would definitely take into consideration. So if the patient has a very low FVC, start thinking about maybe like obstructive lung diseases, COPD, asthma, or some type of like lung problem where they're not able to inflate their lungs effectively, like in a restrictive lung disease. But again, if their NIF is really low, their negative inspiratory force is low, and their FVC is low, I would definitely be thinking about that neuromuscular weakness problems. Again, Guillain-Barre, myasthenia gravis, and some type of like exhaustion of the muscles. Um, the other thing that you can consider is ordering some labs. I would maybe always get a CBC in these patients. The thing that they may ask on the exam is you see a patient with a CBC and their uh, hemoglobin or hematocrit is like elevated. So they think, oh, that's polycythemia. You may see these in these patients who are chronic COPDers that they're increasing their amount of red blood cells to compensate for their low oxygen in the blood. The other thing is taking a look at some of the electrolytes. I think that wouldn't be harmful to check the calcium, check the mag, check the FOSS. Sometimes those alterations in those electrolytes can actually alter the activity within your breathing processes. And the other thing is check out TSH with a reflex. Remember, hypothyroidism, severe hypothyroidism can trigger a CNS depression issue. So I would check that as well. But yeah, those are the things I would be ordering as additional tests, Rob. All right. The most important thing, guys, is, is that if you take a good history, a good physical exam, it's going to give you most of what you need. We, know, we all know that. Going into medicine, you have a really good thorough history, a thorough physical exam. 
you're gonna find what you need to be looking for. But ordering a chest X-ray to assess for pneumonia, a pneumo, pleural effusion is great. If you have a high suspicion for a PE, we're gonna go over that with that CT. Uh, MRI of brain and spine if there's a neuro injury. Uh, bedside PFTs like a NIF FVC may sometimes be helpful. And then of course, ordering your standard labs like a CBC, TSH with reflux and getting your electrolytes. All right, Zach, next and final point here, really, really important uh, portion here of this podcast. Talk about the treatment for respiratory acidosis. Yeah, so the treatment of respiratory acidosis is obviously you have to isolate the underlying cause. If you don't figure out what the cause is, you can't treat this. You can kind of just empirically just shotgun approach it, but I think the best thing is to, again, think about the underlying cause. If you have a patient who you think their issue is CNS depression, right? So they have those pinpoint pupils, they have some type of uh, undisclosed drug history use, or you think that they've gotten a medication recently that likely explains their symptoms that is depressing their central nervous system, reverse that drug. So if it was an opioid, give them naloxone. If it was a benzo, give them flumazenil. All right. So those are definitely things to think about. Or if you get a TSH with reflux back and it shows, oh my gosh, this patient's hypothyroidism is frick, then I should probably give them levothyroxine because that's maybe causing their CNS depression. The other thing to think about is, is this a neuromuscular disorder? So does your exam suggest that they have weakness? So they have some type of decreased strength. They have decreased reflexes. Maybe you check their NIF and their NIF is really low. Their FVC is also low. And you're definitely concerned that they have some type of uh, potentially Guillain-Barre syndrome or myasthenia gravis. So you send off some tests to confirm those. Then, yeah, you can go ahead and treat those patients with BiPAP. Sometimes BiPAP and then obviously treating their underlying disorder of what caused their GBS and their myasthenia gravis is important. But again, BiPAP would be somewhat beneficial for those patients. The other thing is considering if you have a patient who has like a pontine stroke or something like that, or they have like a significant spinal cord injury, I probably wouldn't put those patients on BiPAP. They maybe need some invasive mechanical ventilation. And then again, figuring out, is this an exhaustion issue? Is the muscles just so fatigued because they've been working so hard? So is this some type of like pulmonary edema that's caused their hypoxemia and they're breathing at a rate of like 50? Okay. Then if that is, put them on BiPAP and probably direase them with some ferrosamide. The other thing, is it pneumonia? If it's pneumonia, again, put them on something like a high flow nasal cannula and then start them on antibiotics. Is it ARDS? If it's full-blown ARDS, then you should definitely intubate these patients. You should prone them and then likely do paralysis because these are the mortality benefiting procedures. The next thing is, if it, is it a big fat PE that you see on that CTPA? If it is, you should consider whether it's best for them to get heparin if it's like a submassive or TPA or, or maybe even embolectomy. And then if it's an obstruction within the airway, remove that foreign body. Maybe you have to do like a bronchoscopy and remove the foreign body. Um, is this something else? Is this a lower airway obstruction? So do they have like significant COPD or asthma exacerbation? Consider things like duonebs, which is ipratropium bromide and albuterol, plus maybe some steroids. Maybe you have to give them some IV steroids. And then if for those patients who have like an upper airway obstruction, like significant laryngeal edema, maybe you need to give them steroids plus something called racemic epinephrine. Uh, and that would maybe kind of hold them through unless you actually have to, again, reintubate these patients. But again, you figure out the underlying cause. Once you find that, you treat that. That is the way that we should go about this, Rob. Awesome. Quick reminder for the treatment. Let me have a, a, a quick recap here, okay? Reversal agents for CNS depressants. We have naloxone, flumazenil, and levothyroxine. Neuromuscular disease, we're using things like BiPAP, and if it really gets bad, we're going to go ahead and intubate. Uh, lung diseases that cause a lot of exhaustion, pulmonary edema, you can diurese, and BiPAP. Pneumonia, you're going to give them antibiotics and high-flow nasal cannula. ARDS, you're going to try and prone them. You can uh, intubate and even paralysis if needed. 
a PE. Of course, you're gonna try heparin versus TPA versus embolectomy. And then finally, relieving the airway obstruction by removing the foreign body, giving them steroids plus racemic epi for laryngeal edema, and you could be giving them duonebs and steroids if it's a COPD exacerbation. All right, guys, so we covered a really a ton of information in this podcast, but I hope it was kind of easy enough and really all the high-yield information that you need. Uh, again, I, I really urge you, we both urge you to, to go ahead and check out the website, become a member. I think you guys are really going to enjoy what we have to offer. Tons and tons of resources, the notes, the illustrations to really master medicine. But this is going to cover respiratory acidosis in part two of our, of our series on acid-based disorders. Our next podcast next week, we're going to be talking about respiratory alkalosis. But I thought this was an awesome podcast. Zach, we did it again. How are you feeling? I feel like this was a great podcast. I think it was a nice small topic to kind of get us ready um, to cover the, I think, the eventual big, you know, Mac Daddy of all of the acid-based disorders, which is metabolic acidosis. But we're going to get there. But I, I think one, some of the big, you know, key takeaway points for this podcast to really, really take home is, again, when you think about respiratory acidosis. Again, think about this as the problem being a high CO2. If it's high CO2, think about why they have a high CO2 within the blood. Is this a brain brainstem problem? Is this a nerve muscle or chest wall problem? Is this something where the lungs are breathing, but they're not efficiently being able to clear the CO2? Or is this an obstruction? Once you've done that, take into consideration their exam findings. Do they look somnolent? Do they look delirious? Do they look agitated? Is there any concerning findings of right-sided heart failure from high pulmonary constriction or any concerning findings of high ICP? Consider getting your ABG Look for that pH to be low and the CO2 to be high. You may see metabolic compensation, but again, it takes some time. Other things to consider if the exam and the symptoms aren't super obvious, get that chest x-ray, that CTPA, maybe do some bedside NIF-FVC testing, and again, get those labs like the CBC, Calcium, Mag, and FOSS. Other things to consider is maybe an MRI too if you definitely have some concerning findings of high intracranial pressure. But again, once you've done that, you've diagnosed this patient, treat the underlying disorder. Once you've figured out what it is, you reverse those particular agents that are depressing the central nervous system. You relieve the obstruction. You relax the lungs. And again, I think these are big things to take away. And I hope all of this made sense, engineers. I hope that you guys liked it. And as always, until next time. Mm-hmm.